I know that sometimes people say you can't legislate morality, but every legislation is <laughs> legislation of morality. And everyone there's a cliche now because we've, heard, we've, said it, we've said it so much. So, so the only question is whose morality are you legislating? And, and as Christians, we should always want biblical morality be, to be legislated. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here once again with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. Gentlemen, we are all back in our hometowns, although J.D. is in his car. How are you doing today? Excellent. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. Are we all jet lag recovered? Did we all get back into our pulpits on Sunday? I did. I did. I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. It was weird. I only actually missed one church service. I was able to change my flights around. So I was home on Saturday evening and I went to church on Sunday and I felt like I'd been gone for 50 years. And <laughs> yeah, my too. congregation was like, oh, we thought you had another week. And they'd only miss me for an hour. You know, it's a very <laughs> strange feeling. Yeah, we woke up that Sunday morning and I was like, well, I didn't think we were going to go. And then, like, well, I want to go to church and I'll just call. I called the guy that we had um, subbing for me just so he wasn't shocked. And then we just showed up and I just kind of participated. But yeah, it was. it did feel a lot longer than 10 days for sure. Yeah. Turns out that Rwanda is really, really far away. <laughs> <laughs> and Matt, you had further travels after our time there. Yeah. Yeah, we went to Nairobi, and then we went to our, my in-laws gave us a two-day safari and Ebisali Game Park, which is on the foot the foot of Kilimanjaro. So it was just like unbelievably scenic, and it, it Ebisali is known for its elephant herds. You had these massive; you couldn't turn a corner without seeing elephants. There's elephants everywhere, um, and everything. You, it's like a completely cliched place. Everywhere, everywhere you go. Drafts, zebras, hmm. elephants, every, every exactly how like you might picture Africa as a child. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's in the valley, and it's pretty amazing. I love it's it. Really Matt, and, Matt and Ann go from like you know we're gonna have to box ourselves up and go in cargo storage <laughs> to like <laughs> the kings and queens of Africa uh, trip. <laughs> it was. We were like we were like we were like it was, it was like the African like Nigerian like, we like yeah yeah. I'm you know, like hail the conquering heroes have arrived and like paraded around your your uh, mountaintop experience. So, you know, <laughs> cry me a river next time, Matt. That's right. Well, guys, today our topic has once again been set for us by Matt's predilection for saying strong things on the internet. I'll let him uh, give the background here in a second, but this was brought on by a question that Foley Beach. Archbishop of the ACNA and until recently chairman of GAFCON was asked about pending anti-homosexuality legislation in Uganda. And we're going to take the opportunity presented by that kind of questioning to talk on this episode about the law of God and its applicability today and to draw some distinctions between civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. But before we get to that, Matt, why don't you set the stage? You reacted to a tweet about Foley, and then the internet, as it so often does, reacted to you. So what happened? Well, so Uganda is presently debating a bill that passed its legislature about some stiff penalties for homosexual uh, homosexuality in Uganda. 
And uh, you know, I don't agree with every aspect of the bill. I the part of parts of it, like just just being identifying as homosexuality is becoming criminalized, and I I don't know that that should necessarily be there. And although the I don't think the president has should. asked them to rewrite. Yeah, the president has asked yeah. them to rewrite that part. But but as far as as far as the sodomy, basically the, the basic sodomy laws, which are which are being called for, I think that's a, a reasonable thing, and I think most societies should have uh, laws against sodomy, laws against adultery, laws against divorce, laws against uh, you know, all the kinds of things that. The, the scriptures are are clearly identifying as as contrary to the will of God. So I I said I said I, resp- I retweeted this person's outraged tweet who is responding to Foley Beach having a kind of non-committal. Well, this is a different place. Uganda is not in America. We have to understand what they're like, what what, what what the different issues are there. And I said, well, you know, they said he should be ashamed of himself. Yeah, they said he should be ashamed of himself. I said, no, no, no. He should have he should have owned that. He should have instead of he. I think he dissembled a little too much. He should have said, this is great. We should have sodomy laws here in America. We should reinstitute them, and uh, and and that would and we should never ever be upset when any country around the world uses their legal system to protect themselves against our depravity, which is what's going on there. I mean, Uganda is not the only nation that has enacted these kind of these kinds of laws. I think 30 other states, 30 other nations in Africa have done the same kinds of thing because they're trying to protect themselves from American colonialization or our moral colonialization, trying to push on them things like homosexuality and abortion and all the things that are destroying our, our present society. And so then your tweet oh. got a reaction. Yeah, lots of people didn't like it. I don't know, what, I don't know what why they were so upset. Uh, people were, were angry and they said all kinds of, um, uh, you know, I got retweeted several times by people and ungodly uh, language. And yes, yes, yes. And my bishop should be involved and all that kind of thing. And so, but I I don't care because, because I mean I I it's the usual suspects. I mean there, I guess the real question comes down to has God when you read when you when you read the 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 legal the civil laws in the old in, in the old covenant under the old covenant the fundamental question is did God reveal those or are those the, or are those the products of human culture human society. If God revealed them, which I think the scriptures pre- clearly present them in that way, then they're good laws. Now, I, I don't think that since that because we're no longer, because ancient Israel is no longer a thing, because we're no longer, there's no longer a, a covenanted Israel as there was under the old covenant, um, nations are not obligated, <clears throat> excuse me, obligated to promulgate any of those laws. But they're good laws. And so a nation is free to do so. And I think, I think. I think it would be wise for most nations to model their their legal system after what God revealed for Israel in the old part of the old covenant. Well, which is in fact what uh, Western civilization legal jurisprudence has been. I mean, you can go back to like Croxford. I think it's Croxford. Uh, I forget. I, I'm not in my library right now, but you know, you read commentaries on English common law down to the ages, and they read like a like a commentary on the Old Testament. I mean, like the commentary on the Book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you know, obviously, there has always been, which we can talk about, um, this kind of recognition, as you mentioned, between the ethnic state of Israel and sort of modern uh, nations, or maybe not always, but certainly in the modern period, which has caused, which has been a cause for discussion. But but you're right, Matt. I mean, from a Christian perspective, there's a sense in which, you know, the general equity of God's revelation to the world with respect to 
the right ordering of people and and societies and relations is something that at the very least Christians should advocate for in in a in a theoretical sense, you know, even if we recognize the cultural changes that have taken place from an agrarian um, ancient Near Eastern society to a to modern industrial one. But but you know, the, with respect to the outrage that was shown about the Ugandan bill, you know, it's amazing to me that people don't realize how relatively recent um, and in fact, probably even to this day in some cities, if not states, there are um, very uh, strident uh, laws against things like sodomy and, and adultery uh, has been had had been criminalized at one point. I mean, you know, divorce was much more difficult. Like the, the question of sort of sexual promiscuity being a non-issue with respect to people's uh, to legal intervention is is such a an incredibly modern idea. Incredibly and you're, recent. You're referring even to the U.S. now. No, for sure. Yeah. No, no, I mean for sure. I mean that was, you know, there were, uh, you know, decency laws um, even on the books with respect to, um, or not even, especially with respect to uh, television and movies. Uh, you know, just a couple of decades ago. I mean, this is what, and and so this idea, you know, think about this. Insert, and this is not to do a reductio absurdum, but insert some other sexual perversion that the Bible declares into how dare you make a law against that. And you can see how, well, of course, the question isn't whether or not societies have laws and limits against sort of sexual relations. It's just where where are the lines drawn and who draws them? Because, you know, most sane people up until yesterday would say that, for instance, you know, whatever you did in your own home, if it involved uh, a minor and an adult, well, that would be illegal. You know, we would rightfully call the police and they would they would knock down your door and drag you to prison. And yet you can see that that type of libertarian logic is even infiltrating our current discussion about um, lowering the age of quote unquote consent, um, you know, trying to sort of pathologize and sort of normalize, sort of, excuse me, normalize, you know, sexual deviancy at all, at all levels because it's going to be arbitrary where you draw a line unless you have some sort of uh, transcendent code or boundary, which, of course, the Christians have always argued. But uh, when that recedes, well, then don't be surprised if if what becomes sort of normalized is just, um, you know, the, the desires and devices of our hearts. And that's what we're looking at happening um, culture wide in the West, which is precisely what's being pushed back against by the by many of these African countries. So how is it that we can tell, and I'm, I hope you can hear the devil's advocate in my voice here, but how is it that we can tell which laws can be ignored and which ones have to be kept? I mean, I'm sure all three of us are wearing clothing that's made of two fabrics and we had shellfish to eat the other day. What What is it that helps us understand what laws are, quote unquote, still on the books for us? Well, there's a couple of ways to do that. First of all, you know, we are people of scripture, tradition, and reason. And so there are some laws specifically in the New Testament, most notably the dietary laws and then the laws for circumcision and things like this that are explicitly addressed and abrogated or, or nullified um, in the writings of the New Testament itself. And so particularly when it comes to shellfish right. um, and some of the dietary prescriptions, we literally have chapters in the New Testament where God reveals Peter in Acts, particular. Um, all foods uh, clean. <laughs> that's right. So like when people Acts say, chapter oh, 10, Mark 7. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's no way to show your, your sort of sad, benighted ignorance of the Bible um, than to sort of point out the fact that, well, Christians still eat shellfish. So, you know, mic drop, 
they're all hypocrites. It's like, that's just such a sad thing. You've, you've told me so much about yourself that now I feel compelled to pray for your soul. Um, you know, so there's that one aspect. And the second aspect is that we do actually have an unbroken chain of Christian history for the past two thousand plus years where people have taken not only the explicit abrogation of the Old Testament laws in the new advisement, but all the relative enduring aspects of what was in the Old Testament and over to the new, not the least of which the sort of what we would our 39 articles would say, those laws which are called quote-unquote moral. You know, no one in the history of the church has ever begun arguing until recently in the progressive church that some of the... Um, moral commands of the Old Testament somehow are not fitting or binding on the Christian conscience. Um, and we see even the Apostle Paul using things like um, the Levitical uh, commands about allowing the, uh, pointing to the oxen who's working for you, that even the oxen gets to tread out the grain is not muzzled, um, which was a principle of um, allowing the worker to get his wages in the context of even talking about fairness and equity in, in the Old Testament. He uses that as a principle in the new, which, again, gives us a, a model of how these enduring principles could be uh, could be translated into a um, sort of universalized Christian context in the new. And we have people who consider this and have worked on this in every single age of Christendom for the past 2000 plus years. And so we're not at a loss for some tradition and riches from which we can draw. I mean, just textually, there's several keys you can use too. I mean, and they're not not completely uniform, but they but they're they tend to work in general in a general sense. So, um, for example, using our the present issue as as our, our key in Leviticus 18:22, we're told that a man should not lie with a man as he has with a woman, right? And then in Leviticus uh, 20:18, I think it is or 20:13. Um, we're told that if a man lies with a man as he does with a woman, he should be stoned, right? So there's, you have, in the one case, the moral law, don't lie with a woman as you do with, or a man as you do with a woman. And then on the other case, you have the penalty. And the penalty, when penalties are ascribed, that's the key for that, okay, this is a civil law. This is how the civil authorities are supposed to deal with, with a violation of the moral law. And in general, those two things go together. When you have a law, when you have a law that says, hey, don't, don't sleep with an animal, and then later on you have the penalty for sleeping with an animal. Those those two are symbiotic. So if you have a penalty, it's usually a, a penalty that calls for remuneration or the, the the loss of life are almost always tied to a moral violation: stealing, adultery, you know, homosexuality, bestiality, something like that. Civil laws, when you find them, they also have penalties, but they're not usually like pay money or or die. They're uh, wash. <laughs> They'll go take a bath, right? Right. <laughs> right. And so then, and so then, and so then you can know like those, that's how those the threefold distinction is made. You can identify just as an individual reader reading your Bible. Okay, well, I have to wash after this. That means it's not a sin, a moral sin. It's a it's an I violated the temple rules or the ceremonial rules. And so those are almost those are all those are all in, uh, those all have been as JD said abrogated or fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament. So we don't have to worry about those now as a, as as our in our present life. We can look at them as as, as examples and illustrations of God's holiness and his per and, and talk about what his purpose was for giving them, but we don't need to apply them today at all. But when we with the rest of the law, when it comes to the moral aspect of it, 
that's always binding. You can tell more law because there's always or usually always a kind of penalty at, attached to a civil penalty attached to violating it. And so they're, they're always binding. And then um, and then the civil penalties themselves, again, as I said a minute ago, no nation is, is bound to to enact those now since we're not since those were given specifically for Israel. But you can. I mean, if, if, if the U.S. wanted to apply those civil laws, they could. So they're not like I wouldn't want to say the civil laws are are swept aside. They're not. Right. They're just they're just uh, they're just not necessary. Yeah, well, I would say I've always been suspicious of a hard distinction between the moral and civil for that very reason, because um, the civil was always an outworking of the fundamental reality of law itself, which is simply the voice of God spoken, transcendent voice of God from outside informing us within. And so, you know, I think that we, the, the people, people who just sort of blatantly say, well, all of those old laws in the Old Testament um, not only don't apply to us, but are essentially meaningless to say, well, you've really and I'm suspicious of that statement yeah. now, and I and I want to dig into it a little bit more because I think some of the uh, well, you mentioned the the clothing of two fibers. I mean, that was a that was a law that yes, we don't follow um, to the letter anymore, and yet the meaning of it and the purpose for it was was to continue with the shame of it, the Lord your God is one, you know, and is not is not divided, but is is um, you know sort of the the monotheistic claim of Judaism in the old, which was such an affront to the pagan nations within which they were um, situated, uh, is still a very important idea. And so you know, to the extent that we have things that remind us of that, or things that we um, you know hold on to uh, that that continue to to guide and direct us in that way, then it's essentially operating in a very similar way um, as it was back then. I mean, that, and that's just one example among many. As part of the fallout or reaction to the current transgender issue in the West, um, there has been some talk about extrapolating the laws in Scripture because transgenderism is not specifically mentioned in Scripture, but there is talk about looking like the other gender. For instance, in Deuteronomy 22, it says specifically that men should not dress as women and women should not dress as men. And um, Twitter wag Phil Vischer of VeggieTales fame did note that that admonition is only six verses away. That's Deuteronomy 22, verse five, six verses away from Deuteronomy 22, 11, which is the part about wearing clothing of two fabrics. So how can we possibly know when they're so close together, which one of these laws points to something that we need to be serious about and which one can be completely ignored? I mean, th- that, okay, that kind of argument that Phil Bisher made is, is designed for somebody who has never read Leviticus or Deuteronomy or, or Exodus. Uh, he's counting on you not going and, and to do... It's most of their theology from androgynous vegetables. To, um... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, count, he's counting on his listeners not going to actually look up the text in Deuteronomy 22 to see what he's talking about. Um, because if you do go to Deuteronomy 22, you find... That uh, the first the first four verses are dealing with justice issues, like you know if 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 you if you see your servant's ox or your I'm sorry your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them or don't ignore them, you shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you don't know who he is, you bring it back to your house and take care of it in case your brother shows up. It's just about what to do when you find lost property. You should hold on to it. Okay. And then right after that comes a woman shall not wear a man's garment. And nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak for whoever does these things and listen to this language is key is an abomination to the Lord, your God. Okay. Just hold on. Let's, let's keep that language in, in check. Then verse six, 
and seven have to do with uh, not taking eggs uh, or not taking a mother and her eggs from a nest. You only take the eggs. And the reason for that is very simple because you want to have the mother remain so she can lay more eggs. Um, and then another justice issue thing in verse eight. Hey, when you build a new house, make sure you build a parapet for your roofs so that you may not bring the guilt and uh, guilt of blood on your upon your house if anyone should fall for it. Uh, make railings. I've actually heard sermons, modern day sermons about, you know, this is why we have railings and and on our balconies because of this because of this justice law right so actually when it comes down to it the the text about men wearing women's garments and men and women wearing women's garment is is surrounded by justice texts it's only after the the, the question about parapets comes into the play then, then you have verse nine Verses nine through eleven, which have to do with uh, with the things that Phil Vischer was talking about. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the, of the vineyard, which seems to have probably an issue with weeds or something. I'm not sure. Uh, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. More than likely, those are two. One of those is unclean. That's the donkey, and um, and then you shall not wear a cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Uh, verses nine through eleven are a pretty well-known category within the old covenant law of not mixing uh, mixing categories, right? And and it, and and most scholars say that goes back to the or most orthodox scholars, let's put it that way, say it goes back to this idea of of God using the law to um, kind of reflect the order. That he had originally established being having been disordered, and his people are people to, who are symbolically by keeping these laws, people of order. That's that's all it's really doing. You'll notice when what I just read, it has nothing. There's not the language of abomination there. Um, there's not the language of this is so horrific in God's sight that whoever does this is is an abomination. If you if you happen to wear clothing with wool and linen mixed together that's a that's a sin god said not to do it it's but it, it seems it seems to be categorized more along the lines of a purity law or a ceremonial law whereas if you wear a man's garment you're a woman vice or vice versa that's an abomination which is a, which that language is very clearly associated with moral moral turpitude so you're saying that just because two verses are close to each other in yeah. proximity in the text doesn't necessarily yeah, yeah. mean you have to read them through the same lens? Oh, read the Ten Commandments. I mean, like just, just in Exodus <laughs> 20, like like after the after the commandment not to covet. I mean, there's like there's like just just random laws thrown in I there. I think <laughs> I think in my uh, home Bible that, that that I read regularly, the heading for De Deuteronomy 22 is actually various laws. Yeah, I mean, it's everyone. Everyone who reads that knows that, that, that there's there's everyone who reads these these books, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, not and not all parts of Leviticus and not all parts of Deuteronomy, but, but everyone knows that in certain places there are just like case law or or things thrown in there that that don't necessarily have a tie to something else. Yeah, um, there's not always a thematic a thematic thing going on in the chapter. There are some chapters that are like that. I mean, do, um, uh, Leviticus 18 is thematic. I mean, that has to, that's a, those are all the sexuality codes. Those are definitely thematic. And you have that in Leviticus 16, which is about the Day of Atonement. But I mean, you don't have, but, but in a large part, large swaths of the, of the law, there's not an ongoing theme. It's just laws put down. Um, so again, I, I think it's really deceptive and, you know, 
I don't know, I'm not going to the word condescending. I'm not, it's, yeah. it's not that. So for Phil Vischer to say that to his readers is it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's kind of a lying thing. He knows better than that. I would hope if he doesn't know better than that, then he, then no one should be listening to him. Well, we seem to have lost JD somewhere on the road between Hilton Head and Charleston. Hopefully he will come back on, but, but Matt, I wanted to give you an opportunity to expand a little bit. We sort of talked briefly about Jesus's abrogation of the ceremonial law. Why don't you say more about why it is that it would in fact be inappropriate to try to observe the ceremonial law in light of Jesus Christ? Okay, all of that's associated with the the temple tabernacle and, and cleanliness surrounding the, the reality that God within the community of Israel was living in their midst in the tabernacle or in the temple, right? So most of the tabernacle, most of the cleanliness laws, um, if you look at them, and along with the dietary laws, had to do with things. We've already mentioned one category where you where you have a breakdown, a kind of a chaos, a breakdown of ordered categories. But uh, they also had to do with things like death, decay. So you have the laws regarding um, mold, <laughs> laws regarding um, bodily emissions, which uh, blood, uh, skin infections, things like that. And most scholars believe that in general, you can't say this for every single one of them, but for in general, a lot of the ceremonial laws and the dietary laws too, because the things you couldn't eat included things like vultures and eagles and things that prey on other things, um, had to do with death, decay, and uh, and rot. And God, in, in bringing and corruption, those laws- Corruption. Corruption, right. And in bringing those laws forward was highlighting one of the main consequences of sin entering the world, which is death, decay, disease, rot. Right, so that so that when he lives among the people of Israel, they're to keep themselves away from those resulting consequences of the fall, because they're. Uh, if you read um, God's promises regarding the land they're going into, and God's promises regarding the the temple and the tabernacle that He's giving them, those are all kind of proto or uh, ret- returns to Eden, returns to. The time when man and God were in fellowship, full fellowship, and so sin is to be eradicated and not dealt with, and not, and the effects of sin are not to be brought into, uh, into His presence. So now that that begs, I mean, back to the question. So why, <laughs> what is it that Jesus did that might that might make it necessary, therefore, for Christians no longer to observe the cleanliness laws, and in fact, and inappropriate to do so, inappropriate mm-hmm. to do so. Well. Because Jesus has taken our sin upon himself, and he's died on the cross, and that, and he's atoned for it. He's, he's become the, the final and perfect and ultimate sacrifice for our sins, taking away the uncleanness and also ultimately removing the consequences of sin, right? So there's no more need for laws highlighting what the, what the consequences of sin has been because Jesus has taken those consequences upon himself and he's undone them and he's risen from the dead. And so he has made clean what was once unclean. He's, he's made living what was once dead. And so we are people who are now free of those, of those restrictions because Christ has set us free. You know, interestingly enough, he even references, even references, um, you spoke of mold, you know, one of the, um, you, you know, because Old Testament priests did a lot of like inspecting houses and skins and like were, you know, walked around. And one of the things that they would, they would uh, look at is if you had mold in your house, you know, there's an indication the house was representative of like your dwelling, you know, it wasn't just like your the place you rented. And there was an ultimate judgment on the corruption of a house, whereby if it was found to be 
uh, molded through and through, then not one stone would be allowed to stand on another. And so most famously, Jesus, you know, when looking at the temple, you know, famously says, you know, there will, this will be torn down and not one stone will be left on another, which to his hearers at the time would have been an immediate uh, recollection of the judgment that would come on a corrupt um, and, as it were, diseased house. And so, you know, we see Jesus in particular, who's supposedly meek and mild and like, you know, hip, hip and cool and not the legalist and everything, um, actually uh, referencing the Old Testament law as frequently and as as um, sort of consistently as, as any figure in the entire uh, Gospels in the New Testament. And he's the one who, who continuously shows how the intent and the purpose of it had been augmented and added upon by the traditions of the scribes and the elders in a way that was not getting to its ultimate purpose. And we see that time and time again in his fight with the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Pharisees particularly, that he's going back to what these laws actually meant in the context of when they were given and why for the good of the people and for the sake of the people of God, not as a um, excessive burden, but as actually as a liberating force. And that's, that's, that's an aspect of the law that, um, you know, I certainly wasn't taught as a child and I still wrestle with even now as an adult, but, but when the voice of the law is understood as the, the loving father for your protection guidance and, and, and what they would call now flourishing, uh, well, then it changes the entire relationship to the to the question in a in a life changing way. Yeah, I mean, I'm not to be too nerd, nerd not to nerd out too much here, but I mean, this is why I think John added in his he, he was the last last gospel writer. This is why I think he put um, the cl- temple cleansing in chapter two mm. um, because I think he's I think I think I think Jesus cleansed the temple twice. That's right? what I think, I think too. Yep, Amen. I think he did it in the beginning of his of his ministry. And the end of his ministry, and that mirrors what you were talking about, JD, in, in yep. Leviticus 14, where the priest enters the house, sees the mold, gives it seven days, comes back seven days later, sees it still moldy, and then you take that house down. So, um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, l- let me sum up, at least to my mind, what I've heard you guys say about the law and its ongoing or not so ongoing import for us. And you, you, you can um, clarify what I say, correct me, et cetera. So we have basically three kinds of laws happening in the Old Testament. There is the moral law, which is still fully in force today. There is the civil law, which is rules laid down to organize the people Israel, which are good for civilization and can be enforced if a state would like to enforce them today. However, we as Christians are not under that law, so we don't have to live under it. However, it is good and reveals good things about how God has designed people to live together in the world. And then we have the ceremonial law, which is totally abrogated by Christ Jesus' finished work for us, and in fact would be inappropriate for us to try to keep, because to do so would be to say, I'm actually going to try to clean myself up rather than rely on Christ to do so for me. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. That's then that's that last point you're making is why why you see so much in Paul's letters about circumcision. That, he's, right. that's, that, that last third point you made is what all the circumcision fight is about. For Paul, it's not just a question of ceremonies it's it's you're you're denying the work of christ because you're you're putting yourself under um, a system that has that still looks forward to the atonement when actually actually the atonement has taken place the book of hebrews too when when you read hebrews 6 and hebrews 6 has that just terrifying you know if you you're going to put to you're going to 
crucify Christ all over again. If you if you've heard the word, you you turn <laughs> Hebrews away. alternates between yeah, yeah, comforting yeah. words and <laughs> terrifying words. Right, it does. It does. Um, but I think, but what at issue there, I think, and a lot of a lot of uh, Orthodox scholars say so. Is that issues there is that there's a, a wavering congregation, a, a congregation of four. Of, of, of Christians, Jewish Christians, who are being tempted and lured back to the temple. And so he's saying, hey, you go back to the temple, you've thrown over, you've thrown over the, the, the sacrifice of Christ, you've, you've given up the only thing that can save you. So you're, you're doomed. And so I think that's, that's, that, that's that when you all almost all of the not all of them, but almost all of the fights that, that you see reflected in the New Testament epistles have to do with that third point of the ceremonial law and its abrogation. So how does this, let's uh, tie a bow on our conversation here. What, what are we saying about this Uganda law? What are we saying about the good news? How, how, how does this all work together? Yeah, I mean, I did, I did want to revisit the Uganda thing, and thanks for the question. I think it's important to point out that the the reason I I'm and I and many others, not just myself, who are are thankful for legislators in Africa and other countries putting forward laws like this, and we're thankful for people in the United States who might put forward laws like, like this, is not because we want anyone to be hurt or harmed, but but just the opposite. And it is it is the it is the job. It's the God-given responsibility of civil leaders to punish wrongdoing and to encourage the good. That's what I, that's what all laws are for. I know that sometimes people say you can't legislate morality, but every legislation is mm-hmm. legislation of morality, and everyone it's a cliche now because we've, we've said it, we said it so much. But but so so the only question is whose morality are you legislating? And and as Christians, we should always want biblical morality be, to be legislated. And one great benefit of this is that, you know, in a, in, a, in a culture, in a nation that might be ruled by laws that are reflective of God's own law, you have continually before people's eyes, the reality that they don't follow the law. I mean, I think it, actually the civil law in that point in time could actually be a, a, a jumping point to preach the gospel. I mean, you could see, you know, you, you know I know that in this nation, for example, just speaking um, hypothetically, let's say adultery is is made illegal, which would be great. I would love for adultery to make it be made illegal. And then you could say, well, look, you really want to commit adultery, don't you? Well, that points to your sinful heart. Here's the remedy for that. The, you that points to the reality that you are a lawbreaker, and and yet, um, and and you and you, even though you may not actually commit adultery and go to jail, you want to. And in Jesus is, and according to Jesus, that is a violation and of the same the law. Here's the cross. Repent and trust in Jesus, right? Yeah, and most states still don't, most states, well, I could be wrong, but as far as I know, most states still don't have what we call, quote-unquote, no-fault divorce, which essentially penalizes and is a punitive judgment on adultery and divorce because, you know, depending on who is the wronged party, you know, it's very expensive um, if you've stepped up, uh, you know, so even that, you know, you could say that is a form of legislating a morality that prioritizes what we consider to be the good, i.e., but not and fidelity over in adultery, you know, and people getting mad at that too. You know, we've seen people trying to get rid of, of that uh, stricture. And uh, we will have this continued um, as long as the kingdom of God is in this world, but not of it, because there will be people who say, um, despite the fact that you have willfully rejected the stop signs, the stoplights, and the, the rules, for lack of a better word, that the Lord has revealed to us, 
we're going to continue to comport ourselves and our families and then by extension our communities to the extent we can around what we believe in fact is the voice of god for the sake of his people and so that's going to look like christians in various communities hoping to get rid of gambling you know get rid of strip clubs get rid of pornographic shows get rid of of adultery. I mean, this is what's going to happen. And that's going to be called Christian nationalism. It's going to be called fundamentalism. It's going to be, you know, as a um, sort of all the scare quotes, but the fundamental reality is, is that that's what Christians do when they get into their environments, they become a blessing to their, to their neighbors by restructuring their world along the revealed word of God with all humility and gentleness in all repentance and confession of our own complicity. But we watched that time and time again. And the Africans that we met and we dealt with were looking at what is going on in the West and saying, no, thank you. Like, we, we, we see what you're offering. We see what you're, you're suggesting we get in line with, and we're rejecting it out of hand. And it's not just the human sexuality, although that's one of the main exports that we're, um, they're dealing with right now. And so what we're watching is really, you know, the old um, clash of civilizations. In the class, although this time, the irony is, is that it's the non-Christian or the non-Christendom West that's actually pushing back from a Christian perspective in many of these areas against the formerly Christian West, and it's uh, causing some turbulence, to put it lightly. So it's it's fascinating to watch. Um, but I, I, too, with you, Matt, am grateful that, that, you know, on all of these various issues, the Christian, the global Christian church has stood up and said, uh, we see what you're offering, we see where you want us to go, and um, no thank you. But I do think, I mean, I've said this before, I said this on Sunday, that friends of ours, uh, you know, I saw a lot of bishops in different places that I've met over the years who have seen the gospel transform their societies, have seen families delivered from animism, have seen, you know, towns and villages reordered along the lines of the gospel, which in this respect would be a comportment to the the loving reality of God's design for their lives. You know, fewer people lying, fewer people cheating, fewer people committing adultery, like judges actually, you know, not just taking bribes, you know, equal weights and measures, all these things, which have come as a fruit of, of embracing the gospel and having lives transformed. And they're looking at us saying, you can go ahead and get rid of that if you want, but we're not, we're not about to give this up. We're not about to turn our backs on the very thing and the very message and the very word that has transformed and reordered our lives. And we have become so accustomed to, and desensitized to just the incredible richness that we, the patrimony of our Christian forefathers that have have bequeathed to us, that we um, are tearing it down uh, at our great peril. And, you know, that's not something I say with any joy, but I certainly can appreciate cultures that are watching the, the fruit of the gospel transform and reorder themselves in along gospel ways, looking at us and, and praying for us and sending missionaries to us and saying, you know, you may want to turn your back on your um, on your patrimony and the gift of this that has been given down to you, but we're not about to. And so call us what you want, but but uh, here we are. And so I'm, I'm grateful. I think it's, you know, it's going to, it's splitting the entire church, Methodist. I had a conversation with some Lutheran friends of mine the other day that had been watching what happened in Rwanda. Well, I just came back from Charleston with the with the bishop and, you know, people all over the world and in every denomination talking about what happened in Kigali, because it was, a, it was an instance where people with all sorts of reasons that they could have stayed divided came together in a common sense of um, defense for the hope of the gospel that is within them. And I'd be there, but I think Christians are going to be 
um, long-lived and profound. So um, I'm looking forward to watching what happens uh, as, as this thing plays out. May we all take heed and read the Old Testament for all it's worth and know what the Lord has to say to us and know what Christ has accomplished for us. Uh, thank you to our listener for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 